Hi, welcome to the Brooks Online Gathering. My name is Muchi Cable. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Glad that you could join with us in this way at this moment. Honored that you would give of your time. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Mark chapter 12. It's towards the end of our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. Uh, the text will be on the screen so that we could follow along together. Uh, we are bringing to an end uh, this collection of messages this week and next. Um, and we thought that it would be best that as we kind of bring this collection of messages to the end, that we would bring some weight to a conversation that's not necessarily new among us, but it is more frequent given our moment and the season that we all find ourselves in. And it's a conversation regarding uh, a justice and what does it look like to have a right relationship with justice, issues that flow out of it and pursuits thereof. So even last week, we talked about recovering uh, the idea and the identity of a peacemaker and the ethic of peacemaking. Uh, uh, this week, we, we want to examine what does it look like to have a guiding ethic, a strong, clear, fierce, guiding ethic for justice in the public square. Uh, public square being that place where people, ideas, policies, civics, and social ethics interact. They engage with each other, they collide. What does it look like to bring a pursuit of restorative justice well in the public square? And Mark 12, it gives us a foundation for that that is powerful. I mean, it's profound. Even at the end of the text, those who heard Jesus's words, they walked away in awe because they knew what it meant for them and for others as well. Hopefully that takes place for us. But let me go ahead and front end our time by framing it with a concern and maybe even an appeal. There is something alluring and attractive about disengaging from civic discourse, about disengaging from the public space, if you will, maybe even adopting some quasi-Amish perspective that allows you to remain potentially neutral emotionally to what's happening around you. And I would say, man, when we as Christians step away from that space, the most vulnerable among us get stepped on and stepped over. And so I would just, I would just encourage us to not be seduced by an attractive idea which says disengage. Furthermore, I would say that the closer we get to the heart of God, the harder it becomes to actually remain emotionally neutral regarding certain things. Let, let me explain like this. We, we are a pet family, I think. <laughs> we have a dog, so there it is. But we try to add to our pet family by having hamsters. So uh, my father-in-law, his birthday was actually uh, this last week. Uh, he got my son a hamster for his birthday. Uh, that hamster lasted about 11 days and he got a tumor and we had to take him back to PetSmart. It was a very interesting moment in our, in our, in our house. Um, I'm not laughing about um, the death of, of Hammy, that would be weird. But it was a very interesting moment right after that Soon after, I mean like within 48 hours, we got another hamster, um, Shadow Weaver. But this was the time when we were moving, we were moving to Little Haiti, we're glad we're finally here on this side of town as a family. And Sunday, we went to go feed ha like Shadow Weaver and he was gone, he escaped. And I was like, oh, that's weird. 
And so Shadow Weaver escapes. So there's parts of, you know, in, in the night where I'm like listening and I'm like, man, like, is, what's that in the walls? Is that, is that you, Shadow Weaver? Or did these stray cats get you? Either way, uh, I was researching because I was like, man, Noah's, Noah's gonna struggle. I mean, first he lost Turbo Hammy and, and now Shadow Weaver escaped. Man, I gotta, I gotta figure out a way to, you know, get this hamster back without spending the money to go get another hamster. And so I'm Googling everything and there's like all of these tricks that you could do, put food out in the place where the hamster, you, you know, lives. And so I did that. I put some food out, a little cup, and I did that for about a week and a half. And I was like, all right. After about a week and a half, I just stopped doing it. It just, I didn't feel it anymore. I just wasn't even thinking about it. And I was walking with Noah. He saw uh, the hamster food that we hadn't got rid of yet. And he's like, you know what? And I miss Shadow Weaver. I was like, oh, crushed me, crushed. So you know what I did? The next day, I got another cup out, put the food in there, and I kept doing it. Now, we don't have Shadow Weaver. I do think one of those stray cats probably got him, so me and Noah need to have a conversation. Uh, but something happened. I, I got closer to the heart of somebody I cared for, and it produced a response in me. It produced a feeling in me and an action. The closer we get to the heart of God, the more difficult, dare I say, impossible it becomes to remain emotionally neutral regarding certain issues, specifically issues of justice. God is not emotionally neutral at all, and we shouldn't be either. But within this public space, it's easy to have a level of emotional neutrality, which leads to functionally disengaging or to be consumed by emotionalism because of the passions and the ideas all around us. What we need is a strong, clear, and guiding ethic. And again, Mark 12 gives it to us. So as we walk through Mark 12, what we'll see is that there's this tension or dilemma that Jesus is getting pulled into. We'll see how he deals with that tension and that dilemma and the ethic he creates by dealing with it. And then we'll apply that to issues of pursuing restorative justice. So that would be the flow of our time, dealing with this dilemma, seeing how Jesus actually deals with it, it's, it's pretty profound, and then connecting it back to issues of justice. Um, Mark 12, read with me, and then we'll take it bit by bit. Starting in verse 13, it reads like this, and they said to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, knowing the incongruence between their words, their intent, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. He responded, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's 
and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Man, the gospels are so rich. And and Mark's gospel, you just see this savior on the move, this suffering servant, very straightforward, very clear, very ambitious about the kingdom and the work he wants to accomplish. And we cannot, with any degree of intellectual, emotional, or even hermeneutical integrity, read the scriptures and not be confronted by the frequency that Jesus finds himself on the opposite side of those in power and on the side of those oppressed, hurting, outcast, forgotten, overlooked, stepped over, stepped on, and he steps up for their sake. And so the dilemma here is pretty straightforward. They are trying to pull Jesus into this social, political controversy and force him to a side, force him to a polarizing place, a polarizing perspective by dealing with the question, is it lawful? Is it acceptable to God to pay taxes to Caesar? That's the presenting question. Now, the more foundational question, the one Jesus eventually answers is how would God have us navigate the public square generally, and in this context, government specifically. Now, what's insidious and sinister about this tension and dilemma that I think we need to note is the parties that are trying to trap him, the Pharisees and Herodians. The Pharisees and Herodians existed on opposite sides of the social-political spectrum. So the Pharisees, zealots of the law, desired a more detached experience with Rome. In fact, they only really used Rome when it benefited them. Now, the Herodians, they used Rome when it benefited them as well, but they had a more attached experience with Rome, cozying up with them. So even King Herod was a puppet king. He didn't have any real power. He was put in place by the establishment. And he was against Jesus because Jesus consistently did things that threatened his power. The Herodians and their crew saw Jesus as a threat, as well as the Pharisees. So while they were, they were on opposite sides of the social political spectrum, they were united by this reality of seeing Jesus as a threat to what they wanted most, power, power. You know I know. Power is a, it's a great tool. It just makes a terrible God to be ruled by it, to have it be the thing that drives life and all actions is scary, but it's easy. Power is very intoxicating, especially if you're insecure. You wield power to harm and to hurt. But the Christian story is that Power is meant to be stewarded and wielded for the purpose of service. This is Philippians 2. This is Jesus, that the God who is, who spoke all things into existence, who created everything that we see, who sits with unmatched power, empties himself, taking on the form of a servant, using his power and the privilege associated with it for the benefit of others. This is the Christian message. 
and it flies in the face of their attempts and the attempts we even have now to try and co-opt Jesus to fall in line with our social political perspectives so that we could secure what matters most to us, which is positions of power. Let me just say this and I'm gonna move on. Man, don't sacrifice your public witness for a seat at the table of power. It is not worth it. And I'm watching some people who are heroes in the faith do it, and it's quite alarming. Furthermore, there's a lot of reckless speech that's happening right now, and part of it is tied to power, another part of it is tied to fear, which was what was in their heart. And fear leads us to say some things that we would regret over time. So don't be ruled by fear in the midst of all of the social political tension. There's an epic that Jesus allows us to have. And so Jesus isn't going to be trapped by their mechanisms. He's, he's not going to allow them to force him into a space where he fits neatly into some social political box or become some single issue savior, if you will. Rather, he says, okay, let's deal with the real issue and this inconsistency within your heart, hypocrisy that creates inconsistency within your life and creates dangerous pathways for the people who listen to you. You're not just harming yourself, you're harming others, let's deal with it. And he deals with it by giving them an ethic. All right, bring me this coin, bring me this coin whose likeness and inscription is on it. Caesar's, awesome. Render to Caesar's what's Caesar's and render to God's what's his. Powerful, powerful. He deals with it by giving a clear, fierce, compelling, strong ethic. Give to Caesar what he's due and give to God what he's due. Now, to understand the dynamics of that, we gotta first see what he's not saying. What he is not saying by saying, render to Caesar what Caesar's, is to adopt some blind allegiance to government. He's not saying that. There's at least two things that he's getting at. One, he's getting at the reality that there are some things that government are due. <laughs> like, and that's part because we exist in a social, political, geographical space. He's like, yo, like, they, they establish roads. We're walking on these Roman roads because of Caesar. That's a good thing. And so there is a type of responsibility due to government. And he says, you discover that and you give it to them. You serve them well. But he's anchoring that not primarily in the government, but primarily in a greater authority. That's gonna come out later, what render to God what's God's, but the rest of the disciples pick this up. So, Peter. Many historians think that the Gospel of Mark was written in conjunction with or primarily by Peter. I tend to fall in line with that based on some of the eyewitness accounts we have in Mark that are very stunning, especially at the end of the Gospel. And so Peter also wrote a letter called First Peter, 
And in 1 Peter, he talks about how we engage with government, and we know that this is in view. And he talks about this idea of submission to authority. Paul picks up on this in Romans 13 as well. But what is absolutely fascinating is that whenever you see calls to submission to authority in the scripture, there's some other things that are happening alongside those calls to submission. One, they usually come in the context of mutual submission. So whenever you see a call to submission to authority, there's usually a context of mutual submission, which is this idea of humility and strength causing this interaction of mutuality where we are serving one another, we're adopting these postures of humility that allow us to be led and allow us to step into the right appropriate spaces of leadership. And so you see this posture or this call to mutual submission. But what else you see is this submission to authority in light of understanding that God has established ultimate authority. In other words, you are submitting to authority by submitting first to God. And so that is clearly in view here. He is saying, yeah, give Caesar what he's due. And by doing so, you're honoring God. But what's fascinating is even though there are clear calls to submit to authority, we know that they're not calls to blind allegiance because there is an end to the jurisdiction of government. Now, that's clear. Give to God what's God. But Paul picks this up even in Romans 13. He says, yeah, submit, but all of this is for the sake of conscience. Essentially, there's, a, there's something happening that should be shaping your perspective of how you navigate the affairs of the world, conscience. Conscience is the compass of your heart, if you will. We talk about it often. But it's good to say it again. It is the compass of the heart created by values and perspectives that thus shape how we navigate life. Now, there's, a, there's an image associated with conscience that is helpful. Uh, it comes from Murray Capill. He, he, he brought this out in his book, The Heart is a Target. Um, but he says it's helpful to look at the conscious like a smoke detector, like the smoke detector of your heart. And smoke detectors can be broken. And so if a smoke detector is broken and your house is on fire, it doesn't make a sound. Smoke detectors can be sensitive. So let's say you burn that bagel and then it's blaring everywhere. The scriptures speak to that, that everybody is born into the world with a broken conscience, they call it seared, that it doesn't respond to the affairs of life well. And some of us have a sensitive conscience. And so we, we aren't able to do certain things because it produces these inward feelings of guilt in us, even if it probably shouldn't. What the scriptures pull us from is away from a seared, away from a sensitive to a strong conscience, knowing that God rules over all and God has created all things for joy and all things are at our disposal to further his plans. 
And so Jesus is appealing to conscience, how we perceive the world around us to how we then should engage the world well. So he's not saying blind allegiance, wholesale give yourself over, passive subjugation to this oppressive empire or regime. Not the God who would speak to Pilate these words, Pilate, you don't have any power over me. The only power you have is that which has been given from above. Not when the disciples heard this, and then we see consistent acts in acts where they are appealing to a higher law to govern the way that they're existing with natural law. So it's not passive subjugation, but it's also not this wholesale, hyper-antagonistic, anarchist-type engagement either. It's engaging with the public square in light of a greater authority, God's. That back part, render to God's what's God's, gives us fuel to understand that. It begs the question, well, what is God's? So Genesis 1, this announcement of the goodness of God in creation is rich. And you get to this one portion where he looks at humanity and he says, I am going to make man in our likeness and our image. In other words, the inscription and likeness of God is on every single human. What does God do? Everything. Everything. The word for that is worship. To give him everything. Now, often when we think of worship in a Christian context, we think of pianos. We think of organs, depending on your age. We think of electric guitars. We think of poetry. When the scriptures speak to worship, they mean everything, all of life. This is Colossians chapter three, whatever you do for God. This is Romans 12 verse one, that in view of the mercies of God, in view of his goodness and his ownership over all of life and how he uniquely engages with these Christians because he's called them from darkness into light through mercy and through the gospel, the good news of Jesus bridging the gap between God and man. In view of that, present yourselves to him as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. It's all of us. It's all of us. What is due God? What does God require? All of us. Now, how do we connect this back to justice? There's some passages that are stunning. Micah 6. Micah 6, God and his people are having a conversation. And through the course of this conversation where God is calling them to the carpet, he is trying to show them that there's, there's a disconnect in their hearts. There's a disconnect in their life. There's a disconnect in their hearts and in their life because there's a disconnect relationally with God. They are, they are now to the point of, okay, what should we do? We, we feel something different. What should we do? What does God require? And they, they start pontificating. He's like, 
should I, should I sacrifice more? Should I, should I, should I give the, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What does he need? What does he require of me? What can I do as an expression of giving him everything? And you get Micah 6, 8. And he's like, you don't have to give the fruit of your body for the sin of your soul. I'll do that. I'll give my son and bridge this gap. You know what I require? That you would walk humbly, love mercy, do justice, connecting it to worship. This is Isaiah chapter one. We preached this in May. I'm not going to re-preach it, but you have God rebuking people who with regularity are lifting up their hands in prayer and praise, fasting and celebrating. And God is saying, yo, that's breaking my heart. And the reason he's saying that this lifting of hands in prayer is breaking his heart is because this lifting of hands in prayer is disconnected from lifting hands to serve and act justly to the people all around them. Which means if God is due worship, which he is, render to God what's God's, everything, our very lives, our worship, then we cannot remove pursuits of justice from acts of worship. When we do that, when we reduce worship in that way, we actually rob ourselves of pleasure, we rob other people of good, and we rob God of the honor he's due. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Yo, pay taxes. There is a dignity and a nobility to be part of certain geographical spaces and governments. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Don't be passively subjugated to the brokenness of the empire. Don't wholeheartedly give yourself over to the empire as if they could produce what I'm going to produce, which is a more excellent, lasting empire, kingdom. Don't do that. Render to Caesar's what Caesar's. But render to Caesar's what Caesar's as a humble act and expression of faith in rendering to God's what's his, which is everything, our worship, our pursuits of justice. This matters in more ways than we could ever describe. And it matters now because we're reducing worship in ways that actually move us away from the heart of God and hurt people that we're called to serve. It matters and it's more relevant now because there is a move to co-op Jesus for our own personal political agendas. We shouldn't do to Jesus what he didn't do to himself. It matters now because this is actually not just a suggestion rendered to God's that which he's due. It's a command and it provides fuel for the work of justice because it's flowing out of a heart of worship. God, I'm actually relationally connected to you and walking out my unique design, your signature on my soul, 
your inscription and likeness on my life, which is to do good for the benefit of others. There's an organization I think it's helpful that I want to close by commending that we would check out. It's called the AND Campaign. And the AND Campaign is a crew of leaders who are serious about giving perspective and thought to how Christians can engage in the public square with authentic compassion and clear, solid convictions. And they've recently released a book which has been powerful. I would encourage you to get it. The link is actually gonna be in here. But one thing that you'll see is that the environment for wrestling through all of these issues will always be the people of God. And so wherever you are, I wanna encourage you to find a home that you can wrestle well through this and actually adopt a strong guiding ethic for how we live and navigate within the public square. A few weeks ago, we asked that God would help us, help us to be more visible and more vocal, more weight to our voice and visibility by making it audaciously clear and demonstratively different. With this ethic, we'll continue to experience that prayer. So let's pray. Jesus, we need you. Thank you for being marvelous, for setting yourself up as a different, to not be a puppet king for constituents, but to be a powerful savior to bring freedom and hope and healing. I pray that we would find ourselves on your side instead of trying to force you to ours. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.